there's a guy who has a bungalow upstate in the Catskills, and every Friday he drives up for the weekend, and he always sees on the side of the road this farmer with a sign that says fresh tomatoes. So one time he's driving up, he has a little bit extra time, he pulls over and he asks the farmer how much for a tomato. So the farmer says, it depends. He says, okay, let me look. He goes over to the vine, he sees a nice big red plump tomato. He says, how much is this one? He says, that one, uh, that'll be five bucks. He says, five bucks, uh, I don't know. So he looks at the vine, he sees a tiny little scrawny little green one, just a baby, it's not close to ripe. Tiny little green uh, tomato, he says, how much is that one? He says, that one, I, mean, I don't know, 50 cents. Guy says, perfect. I'll come back at the end of the summer and pick it up. In this week's Parsha, Parsha's Kedeshim, we have 51 mitzvahs, 13 positive commandments and 38 negative, according to the Sefer Echinach. And one of those mitzvahs is a mitzvah called Orla, which has to do with the fruit of a fruit bearing tree being prohibited for the first three years, first three seasons. We read, When you enter the land, and you plant a fruit-bearing tree, The fruit should be held off or blocked off from you. That's what Orla actually means. For three years it shall not be eaten. And then in the fourth year, All of the fruit should then become holy. What does that mean? It means it has a sacred status, uh, like Meiser Shani, like the second tithe, which can only be eat, eaten in the holy city of Yerushalayim. It becomes sort of like, like, a, like a korban, like a sacrifice in a certain way. Then in the fifth year, you can eat the fruit, meaning with no restrictions, just eat it regular. And the purpose of this mitzvah, following this mitzvah, is in order to increase for you your yield. Ani Hashem Alekeichem, I am Hashem your God, who backs up this promise that the purpose and the end effect of adherence to this mitzvah is to increase for you your yield. This is an interesting mitzvah. Um, there's much to be said about the mitzvah of Orla, but one simple question is, let's just think about the chronology here, the, the progression or the, the story that the fruit goes through. We start off first three years of the tree, and the tree is prohibited, and the fruits are prohibited. Like, like non-kosher food. I mean, not like non-kosher food. It is, it is non-kosher. It's prohibited. Which means it is klipa, to use the Kabbalistic term. It is the husk, the shell. That's a term we use for uh, the extraneous dimension within creation that hides the life force that creates everything. Prohibited things are our klipa. They're, they're, they, we don't see the spark of Hashem within them, even though everything has a spark of Hashem within it in order for it to exist, but it's it's covered, meaning it's opaque. We don't see its divine purpose, and therefore it's inaccessible to us, like like things like all things that are prohibited. Then what happens after three years is that it becomes holy, it becomes holy, <clears throat> and that's why it has to be brought 
to Yerushalayim to be eaten there. Holy, like 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 a korban, like an offering, is holy. And then in the fifth year, and subsequently after that, continuing after that, it becomes regular. Okay, so what what happened here? It started off as the lowest of the low, as prohibited, klipa, or what we call shalosh klipas atameis, irredeemable klipa. Then it became the highest of the high. It became kedusha, holiness. And then it came back down and became neutral, what we call Kabbalistically klipas noiga, or the translucent or the glowing husk. Why is it called glowing? Because it's not opaque, it's translucent. You can see the glow, so to speak, of the godly spark within it. Something that's neutral, it's not holy, it's not designated for, for holy purposes for, for serving Hashem, but you can see how it could be used that way. So anything that's neutral, most of the physical world is neutral, meaning it can be used for good or, you know, God forbid, for the opposite. <clears throat> that's called klipas noiga, that, that, that in-between or neutral phase. So it's very funny. Here's the story. Don't, don't, don't. Starts off at the lowest, goes to the highest, and then it becomes middle. Seemingly, the, the trajectory should be it starts off at the lowest, <clears throat> then it becomes the middle, like neutral, and then it ends up being holy. And that's the climax, that's the pinnacle of it all. So it's very funny, you know, dum, dum, dum. Comes back halfway down. So we have to understand that. In addition, in addition, we have to understand not only does it follow that trajectory, um, but the verse told us that the purpose of the whole observance of this mitzvah was, for what purpose? We, we Like we read, to increase your yield, meaning the yield in the fifth year and all subsequent yield, uh, years. What, what, what does that mean? It means that we go through that whole process in order just to come to the, the middle level where the fruits are neutral, where they're ne neither holy nor nor profane, they're just sort of uh, in between. So that the whole purpose of the whole mitzvah was to come to that neutral level, as if that's the goal. It's very hard to understand. The goal should be to reach the highest level, not to, to go higher and then come back lower. So it sounds almost uh, like the, the Thermidorian reaction. The Thermidorian reaction is a political science term. The two steps forward, one step back. right? Because the, the, in the French Revolution, that took place in the French, uh, they, they made up new months, the month of Thermidor was the French Revolution. So they said that they took two steps forward by getting rid of uh, King Louis, but then they took uh, one step back with the with the French Republic, or maybe with, with Napoleon. And the point is, there, you're talking about a practical thing, that when change happens, it's a radical change, a big change, a revolution. Uh, but then things settle back down. That's very hard to look at a mitzvah that way. That at first, there's this big burst, and everything goes to a very high level, but then it settles back up. That's not how Torah works. That's not how Yiddishkeit works. No, we're Milan B'Kaydish. We ascend in matters of holiness. Everything's always going higher. We're always progressing toward the ultimate goal. I mean, not to get onto a side topic, but that's what, that's what the whole history of the world, everything that happens is we're working toward Mashiach. Every development is ultimately progress. Underlying everything is that, that constant ascendance toward the ultimate, uh, the ultimate goal. So, again, the fruits start off as the lowest of the low, irredeemable klippa, meaning they're not kosher. Then they become the holy, 
they, they become holy. They, 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 they like a sacrifice. They have to be brought to Jerusalem, and then they drop down to regular to normal. Okay. And by the way, before we uh, continue this, I just do, do want to mention, not that this is a class in halacha, but uh, people wonder: Is the mitzvah of orla kept? In, in our day, and is it kept in uh, Chutzlot? It's in the diaspora outside of uh, the land of Israel. And the answer is, although that many agricultural laws do not apply in our time and in our uh, in, and in Chutzlot, but Orla does, and uh, we have to be careful about it. There's actually there's a story about the Alter Rebbe when he was a little boy. He uh, was with his his brother Rabbi Yehuda Leib. And uh, Rabbi Yehuda Leib came over to the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, the first Rebbe of Chabad, and he asked him, what's the bracha achreina on an apple? He was a little kid, so he, was, he didn't know. He was asking. So the Alter Rebbe says, why are you asking? He says, because that lady, a non-Jewish lady, gave me an apple. He said, where did she get it from? And from that apple orchard right there. He said, oh, no, that's Orla. Um, so he actually, as a young Rebbe, gave his brother a tikkun. He told him, um, from now on, never eat anything, never put anything in your mouth until you have ascertained that it is kosher. That you look into the kosher status of anything you eat before you eat it every single time. But the point is that orla is a mitzvah that we, we do keep, even now and even outside of uh, Eretz Yisro. There's a machlekes between Sfardim and Ashkenazim, the, the, the Mechaber and the, and, and the Ramah, uh, regarding the fourth year, um, and then it has to do with uh, whether it's regular fruits or, or specifically grapes. Grapes is, a, is another category, the fourth year, netrovoi. Um, but even according to the Ramah, who's more lenient about the fourth year, that we do, we do uh, keep the fourth year uh, prohibition, in which case we actually, because we, without getting the technicalities, we can't really... Uh, Keep the the laws as if it were Meiser Shani, so we we were paid that we redeem it um, instead. But the first three years, the pro, the, year, the prohibitory years, where the where the fruits are non kosher, that's uh, both the Mechaber and the Ramos, Sfarim and Ashkenazim, uh, both keep this for all fruits. Um, so again, our question: What's with that weird trajectory of going up and sliding back down? So I'm going to tell you a story. The Baal Shem Tov, before he was revealed, he used to go from town to town and he would meet simple Jews, regular Jews, and he would ask them, Masmachstu, how are you doing? And the whole purpose of asking them, how are you doing, is because these simple Jews, who were, many of them were illiterate, they, they couldn't learn, but uh, they had simple faith. And when someone would ask them, how are you doing, they would say, Baruch Hashem, or various different, uh, you know, Yiddish uh, colloquialisms. You know, however they would say, they would they would express their their simple, sincere gratitude to Hashem. And the Baal Shem Tov had a reason why he was doing this, that he understood that this was a very powerful tool in connecting the Jewish people to Hashem. And that this is something on high that in heaven was 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 required and 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 desired and caused tremendous nachas on high for Hashem. So he would go around getting people to say these praises of of, of thank God and uh, 
and, and the like in, in their in their in whatever day-to-day language they were speaking. So the Balshemtiv came to a town and um, he was asking them, how are you doing? And <clears throat> they would give, you know, they would thank God, everything's good, Baruch Hashem, Dankzumabishtin. And then he, he he found out there was a shul where there was this potish. What's a potish? A potish is an ascetic, sort of a recluse. There was this guy who um, he lived in shul, slept on a bench. He only ate a little crust of bread once a day at night after a whole day of, of, of Torah study. Very, very spiritual guy, or at least in his own estimation. So the Baal Shem Tov comes in, he finds this, uh, this ascetic, this potash, and he says to him, Was machst du, Rabbi Yud, was machst du? And uh, the guy doesn't answer. Why? Because he's learning Torah, and that's more important than answering, having a, you know, having small talk. So he doesn't answer. So the Baal Shem Tov says again, How are you doing? Won't answer. The Baal Shem Tov keeps asking, So at this point, you can tell the guy, you know, the guy's like sort of like making motions, like, I could answer you, but I'm not going to. Like, mm, you know, giving the, you know, giving the side eye. And finally, the Baal Shem Tov says, he says, why do you deprive Hashem of his parnasa, of his livelihood? Well, that's it. Now the guy, he, he provoked him. He got up and he says, how could you speak such heresy? What are you talking about giving Hashem his livelihood? Baal Shem Tov said, it's very simple. It says in Tehillim, the holy psalms of, of King David, You, Hashem, are sustained, are settled, through the prayers or the praises that the Jewish people give you. That's what gives Hashem his parnosa, his livelihood, so to speak, is he consumes those prayers and those praises, that sincere heartfelt gratitude when a Jew says, thank Hashem, thank God, dankum ebishtim. And then you're refusing to do it, so you're refusing Hashem's parnosa. This shook the guy up so much. Totally threw him for a loop. And uh, he rethought his whole worldview. There are some versions of this story that the Potash was Yankiv Yosef, who went on to be one of the great Talmidim of the Balsham. But at any rate, the point of the story remains the same. What did Hashem want? He wanted that a Jew should look at his day-to-day life, his health, his family, the fact that he can put bread on the table, regular day-to-day mundane things, and see that that's from Hashem. In other words, that our connection to Hashem shouldn't just be in our religious life, but even more importantly, that we see the connection to Hashem in our day-to-day, regular, mundane affairs. Eating, drinking, sleeping, exercising. All the things that we do just because we're human beings and we have bodies and we, we live in the world. Those mundane things, to connect that to Hashem. And that is Hashem's livelihood, so to speak. When we praise Hashem and we see Hashem in the mundane. And this is one of the most basic teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. The idea of 
sanctifying the mundane, of uplifting the choyl, the 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 vochadik, the the regular day to day, and making it holy by connecting it to our service of Hashem and our love of Hashem and our awe of Him. In fact, the whole purpose for which your holy soul left the holy heavens and came down to this physical world was for that purpose, was to sanctify the mundane. The holy is already holy, but a Jew came down to this world to make the mundane holy, to make this world holy, and not only holy, and and not only heavenly, but ultimately when Mashiach comes, the ultimate goal is to make this world holier than heaven. So I'll tell you another story. The great Chassid and Mashpia Reb Hillel Parachin used to tell a story. Sometimes at a Fabrengen, he would tell a story. What was the story? It was a story about the Maharam Mirottenberg. Who was the Maharam? The Maharam was born in the city of Worms, or what we call Vermeise in 1215 CE. Then he lived in France. In fact, he was present in 1244 at the Cathedral of Notre Dame, the one that just burnt down last year, when they did a mass book burning of the Talmud. 24 wagon loads of the Talmud were burned in front of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And Maram was present for that. In fact, he wrote later a, a poem, a, a lament that we read on, in, it's included in the, uh, the Tisha B'Av readings. Later, he moved back to Germany. Persecution was, was also uh, terrible over there. And finally, in 1286, he decided that he and his family are going to move to Eretzisvall, to the Holy Land. And they set out from Germany across Europe. They made it as far as Italy, to northern Italy, to Lombardy. And there, an apostate Jew who had a bone to pick with Jewish leadership and wanted to prove his loyalty to the Catholic Church, he went to local authorities and he said that the Maram is uh, is a troublemaker, he's a criminal, and to arrest him. And they did so, and they sent him back, they extradited him back to Germany, and uh, there, the, the king, King Rudolf, put the Maram in a tower, in a great uh, fortress, in a tower, as a prisoner, and said that he would not be released until a ransom of 20,000 marks was paid. The Maram told the Jewish community, do not give them one coin because he understood that if it became a good business, if it became lucrative to start ransoming Jewish leadership, then all rabbis would be at risk of such a fate. So the Maram had great self-sacrifice, and he told the Jewish community, do not pay the ransom. And for seven years, he was a prisoner in that tower. For seven years. And he wrote Sfarim while he was in, in prison, and he continued to teach. But he, he, he was, a, he was a, a prisoner, and he died there in captivity after seven years. After he died, they begged that they should at least release the body so he could have a Jewish burial. And that even that, they refused. 
after 14 years, a Jew, a wealthy Jew by the name of Alexander Ziskind Wimfin, was able to bribe the, uh, the authorities and to have the holy body of the Madame released for Jewish burial after 14 years. So finally, Madame was, was buried with his people. And sometime later, during the Seres Yemei Hachuva, during the uh, 10 days of penitence between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, this Rabbi Alexander, the, the wealthy man who had paid for the release of the body, had a dream. And in his dream, the Maram appeared to him and thanked him for getting his body out and, and burying it <clears throat> with Jewish burial. And the Maram said to him, I'm speaking to you from heaven, and I want to reward you for what you did for me. And I have two rewards that I can give you. One reward is that I can make sure the money that you spent redeeming my body will be replaced, and, and even more so, so that you and all of your descendants for all time will always be extremely wealthy. That's one reward I can give you. Behind door number two, the other uh, option is I can bring you with me to my compartment in, in paradise. You can come to my level of Gan Eden. But if you want that one, uh, it has to be tomorrow. You have to leave the uh, earthly existence tomorrow and you'll come up to Gan Eden and you're going to be with me on my level. So... Uh, this Rebbe Alexander, he woke up from the dream, he understood it was a, it was a real vision, and he went to his, his wife and his children, and he wrote a will, and he said goodbye to them, and he explained to them he was being rewarded. He was going to Gan Eden and to the highest levels with, with the Maram himself. And that's exactly what transpired. And he, he left this world on that very day. So Rebbe Hillel used to tell this story. And after he would tell the story, he would ask the Chassidim, who were assembled, knew, and what would you do if you were given the choice that Rebbe Alexander was given? Which would you take? Would you take the money or the Gan Eden? And uh, generally people would, would give the, the answer that they thought is the right answer to give, the more spiritual answer, the more refined, the more lofty of course, we would take the, the Gan Eden, we would take the paradise. Well, what's, what's money? It's material. We would take the spiritual. And this is what people would always answer. And then Reb Hillel would say, fools, fools, you're going to take a higher level in paradise. What good does that do anybody but you? Take the money, and then you can redeem more captives and do more good and help more people in this world. As we said, this is one of the basic concepts the Baal Shem Tov taught. That we were sent to this world to make this world a holy place. To take regular day-to-day -day things, the mundane, the choyl, and make it Kedusha. So now we understand the trajectory of the status of the fruits when it comes to the laws of Orla. It does go from the lowest to the highest. It is constantly ascending closer to the ultimate goal. You know why? Because we have to rethink our whole 
way of, of understanding it. We were thinking it starts off as the lowest, which is prohibited, non-kosher. Then it goes to the highest, becomes holy. And then it drops down into the middle and becomes ordinary. No, you don't understand. Ordinary is the highest. The regular fruits, which are klipas noiga, which are neutral, which are neither prohibited nor holy, but just regular, waiting there with their potential to be redeemed. That's where it's at. That's why the soul was sent to the world, in order to engage with all the things of this world that are neutral, that are not holy, but have the potential to be used for the service of Hashem. That's the ultimate goal, and that's what accomplishes the ultimate goal of bringing Mashiach, of making this world completely refined and holy. And that's why it says that the whole purpose of the mitzvah is to increase the produce of, of the fifth year and the sixth year and all the subsequent years because the purpose of the mitzvah is not the first three years or the fourth year. No, the whole goal of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism, is what happens with the ordinary, with the regular stuff, the day-to-day -day stuff, and using that as a vessel to serve Hashem.